Welcome, friends, to the very first installment of the Faith Action Newscast, a weekly program dedicated to the religious dimensions of American political life. I'm your host, Zach, and I hope you'll join me on this week's episode. We'll be discussing responses to the hurricane crisis in Texas and Florida, and we'll also examine a recent interview of Steve Bannon on 60 Minutes. But before we begin, I want to start with a plug for Global Giving's Hurricane Relief Fund. If you enjoy this week's episode, please show your support by donating to the Relief Fund at www.globalgiving.org. One more time, that's www.globalgiving.org. I would greatly appreciate it, and I'm sure that the victims of Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma will appreciate it too. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome, friends, to the very first installment of the Faith Action Newscast. We have a very exciting first episode for you. In religious news related to Hurricane Harvey, There is a huge controversy brewing in the New York Times and Chicago Tribune and Washington Post and all of the major newspapers and media outlets related to Lakewood Church, which is the 606,000-square-foot megachurch in Houston, pastored by non-denominational televangelist Joe Osteen. So the controversy seems to be that in the time of need of Hurricane Houston victims, Joel Osteen did not open the doors of this very large megachurch to those victims until pressured by different people on social media, by the media outlets, and so on. And what makes Joel Osteen so important is that uh, he is a very influential evangelical voice not just in the Christian community, but in this country more broadly. In 2004, Jill Osteen released his book, Your Best Life Now, which made the top of the New York Times bestseller list. According to the Christian Post, his net worth today is about $60 million. His weekly sermons are viewed by more than 7 million people every week. So with all this, it's very clear that Joel Osteen uh, has a lot of influence as a moral voice in the United States, but he also bears a huge public image for what other people think about Christianity. So it seems clear to me why the major newspapers, why people on social media and you know, why there's such a huge audience and coverage over this controversy. Because if it's true that Joel Osteen did not open his doors to Hurricane Harvey victims, then that's a great scandal in the old Christian sense of that word, meaning he's giving a voice to other pastors in the area and saying, look, it's okay to abandon the poorest and the most hurt among us. So that is a huge issue. But It's hard to say where the PR in this story begins and where earnest intentions end in this story. So it's clear that longtime critics of Joel Osteen's net worth, his media empire, and even his theology are going to see these accusations as all too believable. I mean, it seems very believable that uh, someone with that kind of wealth, that kind of church, that kind of style uh, may not be perceived as having a very sincere Christian message. 
But at the same time, a lot of the people who support and follow Joel Osteen and those who showed up to Lakewood Church the following Sunday after the story's coverage, it's clear that they thought the story was all too unbelievable. There were hundreds and hundreds of people who came out in support from the local area to come to Joel Osteen's church that day. So what does this story really signify about faith communities in America? What does it really tell us about the way that public image of people like Joel Osteen matters to us, whether we're Christian or not? Honestly, the only people who are going to know what really happened at Lakewood Church this past week are those from Houston. And I, being based in Chicago, Illinois, can't really speak to what Joel Osteen did or didn't do. Here's what I think that we should do if we're not in Houston, if we're unable to really tell the truth of that situation. We should be looking to other media coverage and look at what communities of faith in general are doing in Houston, because I don't think that Joel Osteen really is representative of Christians in general. I don't think that he's representative of people of faith in general. The average Christian does not make between 40 to $60 million in a lifetime. They don't have bestsellers on the New York Times bestseller list, and they certainly don't have more than 7 million people listening to them every week. So I want to acknowledge Joel Osteen's influence, but at the same time, we need to look at what communities of faith are doing together in Houston. Now, this reminds me of a story that uh, Fred Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood used to tell uh, when he was alive. He said that when he was a child and he was greatly troubled by news or greatly scared by the news that he saw, his mother would tell him, look, go out. And in situations like these, hurricanes, storms, earthquakes, look for the helpers and you will always find people helping. This command to look for people helping is the kind of disposition that will help us look for help. Who is helping? What is going to give us hope for the victims of Hurricane Harvey, for Hurricane Irma? Whatever Joel Osteen did, it's up to us to look and see who are the helpers. Do we find those helpers in ourselves? Do we find them in the local communities of faith that don't have as much money or pull or media coverage as Joel Osteen. Ultimately, it's my goal with this newscast to spread this kind of news, the news that looks for the helpers, the news that speaks to faith and the realities of American religious life, rather than speculating on the so many unresolved scandals. There's so many scandals in religion, and it does us no good to speculate on these, rather than to look at the hard truth of the situation and ask ourselves, what are people of faith doing in this country? Things that we can actually know with much more certainty than what Joel Osteen did or did not do. And in these hard times, which for a long time now have been rather hard, I think this is exactly the kind of news we need. So that's where the Faith Action newscast stands. That is the kind of perspective I want to give. And I hope that this kind of newscast will repeat the same kind of message that so touched Fred Rogers. So I want to go ahead and talk about the situation in Hurricane Harvey. 
NPR reported that a lot of the federal, state, and local rescue workers are very stretched thin. And that's true whether we're talking about Texas or Florida or anywhere else in the country. So in a situation like this, whatever local communities or faith are doing in Texas and Florida, it's important to report on these because they have a resonant impact right now with officials being stretched so thin. Now, it's difficult to estimate how much the different denominations, the communities of faith of the country are doing, but there is so much underreported news that I want to talk to you about right now. The Southern Baptist Convention has a relief fund that, during Hurricane Katrina, donated more than $40 million to relief effort. And Kevin Ezel, who's the current leader of that disaster relief agency that the Southern Baptist Convention offers, thinks that his denomination is going to have a similar result for Hurricane Harvey as it did for Hurricane Katrina. That's very optimistic. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that there were two rabbis from Atlanta, Georgia, who've already begun securing housing and food for the Orthodox Jewish community fling Hurricane Irma. And so far, 210 local families have agreed to house 600 evacuees. And all they had to do was use an online sign-up form to organize this. Two rabbis have now helped house 600 evacuees. As far as officials in the church go, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese of North America uh, has already begun a survey of the damage estimates for areas affected by the hurricane crisis in North America. And so they're also starting to take funds from unaffected parishes and unaffected areas and bring that to the affected areas using their estimates. And the LDS Church and the Episcopal Church have released similar statements to that of the Archbishop uh, in preparation for Hurricane Irma. The Daily Herald reports that as of this time, the Mormon community has raised 18 truckloads of water and supplies. And the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, has already started distributing the first line of aid that the Episcopal Relief and Development Fund offers. And that's going to Hurricane Harvey victims as well. So this really is being seen by these different church figures as a joint crisis. This really requires the infrastructure of a single effort across the country, across the coastline. Likewise, the Roman Catholic dioceses of Boston and Harrisonburg, Scranton, Pittsburgh, and this is just a number, there are so many others who've offered special collections from their parishes to help fund reconstruction efforts once the hurricanes have passed. So communities of faith are mobilizing across the country to make sure that these victims do have the funds that they need in order to rebuild. According to the LA Times, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the United States resolved to spend the holy time of Eid rescuing victims and offering food in flooded areas. And in Texas, they've already rescued over two dozen flood victims. So in short, faith communities across the country Joel Osteen or not, have not reluctant to do their part. And with the devastation expected by these hurricanes, every little bit of this is going to count. It's going to matter. Because this is what takes people by the collar and says, look, look how much is going on. Look for the helpers. That's what inspires others to become helpers. So the smugness, the indignation, 
that people really get off of from a story like Joel Osteen's is nowhere near as helpful, nowhere near as what the local media are reporting, of what local statements are being offered, local announcements of plans. Ultimately, what's going to help the people of Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma are the local bottom-up efforts, and that's reflected in the scale of news. If only the New York Times, if only the Chicago Tribune, if only the Washington Post would focus more on these rather than what Joel Osteen does. In a sense, does it matter what Joel Osteen does? Of course, we've said enough of that already. But this can't be our only view of communities of faith in this time. It can't be, because there is so much more hope, so much more faith and love and charity that's going on that is underreported. So these are the kinds of stories that I wanted to give voice to today. Switching gears, I wanted to talk about a recent controversy that also broke out on social media between Roman Catholic Jesuit and editor-at-large of America Magazine, James Martin, and the president of the Center for Family and Human Rights, Austin Ruse. According to the National Catholic Reporter, Austin Ruse decided to use his Twitter account to call Father Martin certain homophobic terms and to accuse him of being a closeted gay man, and this because Father Martin recently released a book called Building a Bridge, How the Catholic Church and the LGBT Community Can Enter into a Relationship of Respect, Compassion, and Sensitivity. On the one hand, Father Martin is certainly not the first Roman Catholic priest to be accused of being gay, and he's also not the first to defend the rights and the place of LGBT people in the Roman Catholic Church. In a way, I think that Father Martin is certainly prepared to handle the criticism and handle the insults that he's received thus far because of this book. Now, what Father Martin is the first for is having such a large wave of support from American Roman Catholics for his views and for his calm under pressure. He has been so graceful in the responses of his critics. So I wanted to talk a bit about his book and this book's place in contemporary Roman Catholicism. So according to Father Martin, despite the harshest criticism coming from certain members of his church, overwhelmingly the response has otherwise been positive. So those least surprised by the outgrowth of support for Father Martin are probably American Roman Catholics themselves, because despite the official doctrine against same-sex relations, American Catholics have consistently, consistently held majority support for same-sex marriage since 2011, which very soon will be eight years from now. And according to a recent 2017 Gallup poll, that trend has no sign of changing except for more support for same-sex marriage among Roman Catholics. And of course, attached to this, uh, many other issues that affect the LGBT community. That means that Father Martin now stands in a tradition of American Roman Catholic clerics who have called for changing attitudes toward LGBT people in the church. And this goes back for decades. One of the most well-known figures of these who have argued for these changing attitudes is another Jesuit. Father John J. McNeil wrote 
the church and the homosexual, which argued for the place of gay people, not just in Catholic congregations, but even the priesthood. And in 1969, Father McNeil had founded, in part, the group called Dignity USA, which is still fighting today for LGBT people to be recognized as full members of the church across the Roman Communion. And there are others. There are other examples of this. There's the former Auxiliary Bishop of Detroit, Thomas Gumbleton, who was so inspired by his brother who had been gay and discriminated against by other Roman Catholics. There's the Dominican theologian Gareth Moore. There's Sister Margaret Farley, a nun who wrote a book on sex, which everyone should read, called Just Love. All of these figures have fought against discrimination against lesbian and gay people in the Roman Catholic Church. So Father Martin is only one of these voices that has appeared in the 20th century, in the 21st century, but none of them, none of these figures have received as much support as Father Martin. But I don't really think that the timeline of the Church is really any that different from the recognition of LGBT rights in America at large. The very cultural transformation that we've seen in the 60s beyond the church is going coextensively within the church. And I think that that's one of the most important points of this, that religious identity and secular identity are not these separate spheres, but very deeply intertwined. So I think the next question is, if Father Martin is receiving this widespread support, if his book is really being well-received by a majority of the American public, or would be, what's happening across Roman Catholicism that's speaking to this kind of perspective? Well, Father Martin has allies in the higher church, in the hierarchy of the church, across the world, really. In Germany, uh, Cardinal Reinhard Marx, who is a very prominent figure in the German church, is calling for the same position as Father Martin. He says, it's not so much that same-sex marriage should be our issue, but instead the church's discrimination against LGBT people throughout its history on a number of issues in a number of contexts across the world and across time. Germany is in probably a more progressive position than even the American church is. So Parliament of Germany recently legalized same-sex marriage just this year. But this comes six years after over 300 Roman Catholic theologians and professors across the European continent, mostly in German-speaking countries, signed a manifesto which demanded mercy for Catholic divorcees, it asked for women's ordination to the Catholic priesthood. It asked for the legitimation of same-sex unions. And it even asked for more community and parish participation in the election of the church's bishops and priests. This is probably the most progressive platform in Roman Catholicism today. And if the American church is to have a similar movement, I believe it's going to come through books through teachings of priests just like Father Martin. I think that this book, Building a Bridge, is excellent because it offers this moderate path of saying, look, the church has discriminated and persecuted LGBT people. It's the job of the church to listen and understand LGBT people with compassion. 
the only other option, given the polls on the beliefs of Roman Catholics, and given the kind of response Father Martin's book has gotten, the only alternative to a more progressive church is just a larger break with the official doctrine. And I think that the greatest historical precedent of this in the Roman Catholic Church is the issue of contraception. When in the 60s, the Pope and the delegates of Vatican II ultimately did not decide to overturn official doctrine over contraception. But today, that has not stopped Roman Catholics, even church-going Roman Catholics who attend Mass every Sunday. It has not stopped them from using contraception or just simply saying, look, I disagree with the official doctrine. Catholic identity in the United States, and clearly also in Germany, is a very flexible thing. And it's a book like this that Father Martin has written, which really shows how flexible Catholicism can be. Even if there is no official change in doctrine, it's clear that LGBT people have some reason to hope, if they are Roman Catholics, that the rest of the church has opened its arm to say, look, we need to learn from you how we can make amends. And whatever anyone's feeling on Roman Catholicism might be, it's clear that there is a movement in that church to be a more progressive voice, to be a voice that understands that protecting the rights and place of LGBT people in the church is fundamentally their human right. Now, I want to turn briefly to another story that speaks to this kind of plurality of belief. In a recent Pew Research Center poll, there was an indication that American Muslims also have a similar plurality of belief. So 65% of the respondents to this poll indicated that religion was very important to their lives. And in that same proportion, nearly that same proportion, 64% indicated that there was more than one way to interpret the faith's teachings. And a little over half, 52%, agreed that traditional understandings of Islam must be reinterpreted to reflect contemporary issues. So this movement that I'm talking about isn't something confined just to the Roman Catholic Church. There is a consciousness, not just across denominations, but numbers like this about Muslims are so important to capture because 41% of American adults still believe that Islam encourages violence more than other faiths. 44% still believe that there is an inherent conflict between Islam and democracy. And I can say that there are so many portrayals of Muslims as quote-unquote medieval or backwards, just as there are some of Catholics as well. So I would say that these are the kinds of numbers that we really need to stress in these times. But they're so hard to find because religion, again, as I made the point with the earlier news story, is not reported in this kind of way. We need to look at the flexibility of religious identity. We need to look at how religious identity confronts the problems of the modern world. All of this is so important to understanding religion's role in the public sphere. So in the Protestant world, here's another question. Are we seeing this kind of movement as well? 
Well, of course we are. There's one story in particular that touches home, that touches too close to home for me. I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, and to see neo-Nazis and fascists and all of these alt-right folks marching through streets on which I once walked was very hard for me. To see people beaten in the streets, to hear of Heather Hare's death, all of this was very hard to hear. And in fact, there was a church in Charlottesville that was surrounded by neo-Nazis bearing torches. It was encircled by them as if they intended to burn it or to intimidate the people inside. This church was hosting a counter-protest, and that church was the very parish I once served. So the issues that happen in Virginia are very dear to me, and one of those issues in Virginia is the place of General Robert E. Lee in the church. Recently, CNN reported that a descendant of General Robert E. Lee stepped down from his church in North Carolina after speaking against racism at the MTV Video Music Awards. So I want to play a brief clip of that. We have made my ancestor an idol of white supremacy, racism, and hate. As a pastor, it is my moral duty to speak out against racism, America's original sin. Today, I call on all of us with privilege and power to answer God's call to confront racism and white supremacy head on. So later in this speech that the Reverend Lee, who is a member of the United Church of Christ, gave. He then said, we can find inspiration in the Black Lives Matter movement, the women who marched in the Women's March in January, and especially Heather Hare, who died fighting for her beliefs in Charlottesville. Reverend Lee, I think, is a much better role model for pastors and priests and clerics and deacons and bishops, every person of faith much more than Joel Osteen could be in this time, much more than the scandal represents. This is far more important because American churches across denominations, Baptists, Episcopal Church, whatever it might be, these churches have not resolved yet what to do with the legacy of someone like Robert E. Lee. And I think this is especially true of my very own church, the Episcopal Church, of which generally was a part. But that doesn't mean progress is not being made. This week, the Washington National Cathedral, which is an Episcopal Church, the managing board of that cathedral decided to remove stained glass windows, which once honored Confederate Generals Lee and Stonewall Jackson. At the same time, in the Diocese of Southwest Virginia, the managing board of Robert E. Lee Memorial Church is facing pressure once more to rename their parish. And mind you, Robert E. Lee Memorial was not the original name of that church. It was changed to Robert E. Lee Memorial in the 1900s. After the events of Charlottesville, I do hope that Robert E. Lee Memorial Church will reconsider this decision, because in 2011, they did try to change the name 
but ultimately they decided not to. Now more than ever is that time. In Richmond, Virginia, St. Paul's Episcopal Church has a stained glass window honoring Robert E. Lee and another honoring former Confederate President Jefferson Davis. According to Sojourners, the Reverend Adams Riley, speaking in a frank 11-minute sermon, told the congregation, why not start talking about the very memorial, the very memorial of Robert E. Lee in this church? There are Confederate flags on some of the pews at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. All of this, I think, needs far more public attention. The mainstream news cycle, for good reason, has focused on public monuments and public places. The Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville, Virginia is a good example of that. But we need to consider what is going on in sacred spaces like these. Who's fighting these kinds of memorials? Who's fighting what is in a space that is supposed to be available for everyone to worship? I am thankful that the debate is reaching even these spaces. All of this said, I think it's time to turn to our final news story for this episode. Again, very exciting to have this first episode. Our last story concerns former White House chief strategist and the current executive chairman of Breitbart News, Steve Bannon. So Steve Bannon was interviewed by Charlie Rose on 60 Minutes. And there's an exchange in that interview where Bannon talks about his Roman Catholic background. In fact, it's Charlie Rose that brings it up first. And Bannon's response here is to explain how this faith of his can be reconciled with his support for Trump's recent decision to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or what everyone has been calling DACA. The importance of DACA is that when it was in place under President Obama, it allowed undocumented immigrants who entered the country as minors to be eligible for work permits, and it also deferred any government action to deport them for a period of two years. So this policy, which goes back to 2012 and comes after the failure to pass the DREAM Act in 2011, is of importance not just to American citizens or American immigrants, it's also important for communities of faith. In the end, however, I think it's worth mentioning that Trump's move here to end DACA, number one, should not be a surprise to us, because this is actually one of the campaign promises he made good on. But in the second place, it shouldn't surprise us that these questions of conscience are coming out of the woodwork on this administration, and on this specific issue, because a lot of the people who are affected by this decision were children. They were children when they crossed into this country, and so what they know, what they remember in their life, is all American, just as American as Captain America or Apple Pie or anything like that. But they're being construed here 
as not a part of the American nation. So I want to play a brief clip from the Bannon interview, and then we'll discuss that. So here's that clip. Not happy with this. Can I remind you, a good Catholic, that Cardinal Dolan is opposed to what's happening with DACA. Cardinal Dolan. The Catholic Church has been terrible about this. Okay, fair the, the bishops have been terrible about this. By the way, you know why? You know why? Because unable to really to, 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 to come to grips with the problems in the church, they need illegal aliens. They need illegal aliens to fill the churches. That's, it's obvious on the face of it. That's what, that's what the entire Catholic bishops condemning. They have an economic interest. They have an economic interest in unlimited immigration, unlimited illegal immigration. All right, so now I want to talk about what makes this clip so interesting. And honestly, there's quite a lot. But first, let's explain who Cardinal Dolan is, because Charlie Rose opened his question about Cardinal Dolan. So Timothy Cardinal Dolan is the current Roman Catholic Archbishop of New York, and in 2012, Time Magazine named him in their list of the 100 most influential people in the world. I think it's worth asking why. Well, for over a decade, Cardinal Dolan has been a huge figure in the culture wars. He's really pressed hard from the conservative perspective on abortion and same-sex marriage. But I think that in the media, especially as Charlie Rose seems to indicate, Cardinal Dolan is often typecast as a conservative Republican. But we can't really assign a political party to someone like Cardinal Dolan, regardless of how conservative he is on a number of issues. Back in 2012, Cardinal Dolan was the one who championed the cause of making Dorothy Day a saint. Dorothy Day, the labor activist, the socialist. Under the Bush administration, Dolan opposed both the Iraq War and also spoke out against capital punishment, and these really are pet issues for a lot of Republicans. But Charlie Rose's message, it's otherwise pretty clear what's going on. Even someone like Cardinal Dolan, whom Bannon might respect just as a Roman Catholic and a prominent moral teacher in the American Roman Catholic Church, has come out against Trump's decision, as well as all the other American bishops. So Charlie Rose's question really is, why would Bannon disagree with Dolan and all the other bishops in this country on this issue if Bannon is also a faithful Catholic? And that's really what brings us to Bannon's response and to our earlier news story on the flexibility of Catholic identity today. Bannon says... American bishops have a vested interest in un unlimited illegal immigration because it fills up the church pews. So from the get-go, Bannon's questioning whether the bishops are putting forward a moral voice at all or whether they're just looking out for their own purses. And I really don't want to get into Bannon's religious identity just yet. I think it's important to ask, is there any evidence that the bishops' motives are more tied to money than to their faith? The answer is not really. I don't think that Bannon is right on this. And clearly, after a few days now of media responses from different American bishops, they don't think so either. It's important to talk about the context of what Bannon's talking about, 
because he does raise a number of important points. The first point is that according to a poll published this week by the Public Religion Research Institute, the number of agnostics, atheists, and the so-called nothing-in-particulars has nearly doubled since the year 2000, just 17 years ago. Today, their share among the American population is at about a quarter, or 24% of the population. So it's no surprise that this rise reflects lowered church attendance in general, but also lower membership in the Roman Catholic Church in particular. So the church is declining in terms of numbers. And if it wants to be sustainable, it's going to have to reverse this trend that's really been around for decades now. So it is true that the church hasn't, quote, come to grips with its problems, at least in terms of this decline that, by the way, every Christian church in this country is experiencing. But what is new, what really speaks to Bannon's assumption in his answer, is that the Roman Catholic Church is undergoing a cultural and geographical transformation. The mainstay of American Catholicism in this country used to be in the Northeast, in places like Cardinal Dolan's own Archdiocese of New York. But today, as the American population moves, as people leave the church and enter the church, whatever the case might be, the American Catholic population is now centered more in the South and in the West, and in these places the church is also younger. But what speaks to Bannon's point is that this population is also more Latin American. What Bannon is really assuming here is that undocumented immigrants from Latin America are responsible for maintaining the Catholic population in the U.S., and because of this, Bannon says, the Catholic bishops have turned against Trump's policy to reap the benefits of that particular immigrant population. So here's the issue with what Bannon is saying. The Catholic bishops' support for immigrants, and I mean any immigrants, documented, undocumented, this is not a recent development. This is not something that comes with the Trump administration. This is something that predates several administrations. In fact, it predates the very church decline that Bannon points to as the cause of this. So it can't be the cause of this. We can point to the influx of Italians and Polish communities in the early 1900s. We could point to the influx of the Irish and Germans in the 1800s. All of this has led to a great boon for the Roman Catholic Church in this country, but there is no sense that church decline has ever been a cause of this, and I think that's really the key here against Bannon's point. Even if the American Catholic Church did benefit from Latin American immigration, it's not the cause of the support, because the Catholic Church for centuries, has always supported immigrants. And I think it's worth asking why. There are churches that are very anti-immigrant. There are churches that are very racist and nationalist and purist. There are a lot of ugly churches out there. Why has the Catholic Church done differently? And I think to answer that question, we should first look to a second clip from that interview and then respond to it. So here's that second clip. As much as I respect Cardinal Dolan and the bishops, 
on doctrine. This is not doctrine. This is not doctrine at all. I, I totally respect the Pope, and I totally respect the Catholic bishops and cardinals on doctrine. This is not about doctrine. This is about the sovereignty of a nation. And in that regard, they're just another guy with an opinion. So here's the question. Is the welcoming of immigrants, regardless of their immigration status, a question of Roman Catholic doctrine, or is it not? Can we point to Roman Catholic doctrine as a reason for why the church is so supportive of immigrants? I think the answer here is pretty straightforward, and I would encourage Steve Bannon to read the catechism of his own church. So I'd like to quote from that catechism, which says, The more prosperous nations, like the United States, are obliged to the extent they are able, and boy are we able, to welcome the foreigner in search of the security and the means of livelihood which he cannot find in his country of origin. Public authorities should see to it that the natural right is respected, that places a guest under the protection of those who receive him. And of course, the catechism follows that immigrants need to respect the laws of the nations that host them. That's pretty basic. But here's the part that Bannon might miss, and that's the following passage from the catechism. The citizen is obliged in conscience. The citizen, meaning you, meaning me, meaning anyone with rights really in a country of citizenship. The citizen is obliged in conscience not to follow the directives of civil authorities when they are contrary to the demands of the moral order, to the fundamental rights of persons, or the teachings of the gospel. Refusing obedience to civil authorities when their demands are contrary to those of an upright conscience finds its justification in the distinction between serving God and serving the political community. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When citizens are under the oppression of a public authority which oversteps its competence, they should still not refuse to give or to do what is objectively demanded of them by the common good. But it is legitimate for them to defend their own rights and those of their fellow citizens against the abuse of this authority within the limits of the natural law and the law of the gospel. This is not just a matter of national sovereignty. And I would say it's not even just a matter of Catholicism or Catholic identity. This is a fundamental moral issue that speaks to everyone, citizen, documented immigrant, undocumented immigrant. This is an issue of their common good. The common good that exists regardless of these kinds of citizenship categories. And I think it's for that reason that there are so many other denominations that are taking the same stance as the Catholic bishops. For the Catholic bishops, sure, it's a Catholic issue. It's a part of the teaching that they are called to represent. But it's more than that. The United Methodist Immigration Task Force, the Mennonite Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and the Episcopal Church have all stood with the Catholic bishops on this issue. 
And I have no doubt that there are others that I haven't named, that I haven't found yet in my own look at these articles, who've come to the same moral point, even if they differ in their path of doctrine. In the end, Trump's decision to end DACA is not simply a matter of national sovereignty, because nation and common good are two concepts that are always tied together. And so anyone who's within that common good is still a part of that nation, regardless of the legal categories that are assigned to them. This is a matter of human rights. And human rights are things that no state can grant and no state can take away. I think on that note, we have plenty for our first episode of the Faith Action Newscast. And I thank you all for joining me today. And I hope that you'll listen in next week. Again, please donate. Please do what you can to help those affected by Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. Thank you and have a great week.